my name is Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And today, we're talking about one of the most famous women martial artists to ever appear on screen, Cynthia Rothrock. The inspiration for the character of Sonya Blade in the Mortal Kombat franchise. And also, the only, I think, white female martial arts star to become big in Hong Kong movies. She is in uh, one or two, like, certifiable Hong Kong classics. She's in Sammo Hung's Millionaire's Express, and she's in Yes, Madam, probably the most famous, like, girls fighting Hong Kong uh, martial arts movie of all time, where she co-starred with Michelle Yeoh. She's also in a lot of, um, I guess, kind of direct-to-video crap Uh, I say that with affection. As a performer, she's someone that didn't make it big in America and go to Hong Kong. Her story of how she got there is really interesting in that she was an award-winning martial arts performer, not in combat, but in form. So like weapons forms, different styles. You can find videos online of her doing like snake style and stuff like that. And she was doing it at a time when there wasn't even a woman's category. She actually had to perform in the male category because that's all that there was. And she kept winning. And the story goes that uh, Seasonal Films, who made a bunch of Hong Kong-style productions in America, were looking for the new Bruce Lee. So that was In Sing Young, the guy who discovered and gave Jackie Chan his big break with Drunken Master and Snake in the Eagle Shadow. And Kuryun, who would go on to direct Yes, Madame. They did a bunch of auditions for Bruce Lee types. And she showed up with a friend, and they were like, we don't want to see any women. But, but they... But because you're here, oh, fine, you can perform. And they performed, and they were so impressed that they want, we want her, sign her to a contract. And the funny story about that is, they then did nothing with her. Until she appeared on the cover of a bunch of magazines, and a local uh, news station did a like little segment on her that ended with her going, Hong Kong, I'm coming for you. Sammo Hung saw that and went, wait, who is this person? You have them signed? Bring her to Hong Kong so she can be in Yes, Madame. Now, Cynthia Rothrock, like a lot of martial arts stars, I wouldn't say that she has a movie that's like, you know, the defining masterpiece. Her her career, her impact is in scenes scattered throughout movies. Uh, we each watched a few of her movies this week, but I think I probably had the best time, like, revisiting famous moments on YouTube, you know? I, I didn't watch Millionaire's Express again this week, but I did watch her fight with Sam Ohung. And I mean, that's a classic fight. And all you have to do to sort of understand why she's worth watching and worth thinking about is to look up one of those fights on YouTube. She's a very unique presence in a fight scene. A lot of Kung Fu stars, I guess, are men of a certain height, you know, five, six, five, seven. I think Bruce Lee was like five, seven. Sammo is five, seven. Cynthia Rothrock is just over five feet tall. And I'm trying to figure out and articulate why that makes such a difference, because it does. Well, when she kind of goes up against like a big hulking man like Dick Way in Yes, Madame, and she holds her own against him, it makes her feel that much more powerful because it seems like the David and Goliath thing, right? It's not like a big muscular guy beating up a bunch of innocent henchmen. It's a smaller person being able to perform all of this stuff for an audience. She's incredibly compact she's amazing at doing spinning kicks where her whole body seems to go around in one smooth tight motion she can kick very high uh she can do a backflip with seemingly no effort i mean look at the fight between her and Samo in millionaire's express there's an amazing moment in it where she kicks him uh, he grabs her foot 
And then I'm not quite sure how to describe this, but she propels her whole body counterclockwise, like while her other foot's in his hand to try to kick him over the head with her foot. Like she's so small that all of her all of her moves seem to like encompass her whole body in a very in a very smooth and and tight way (laughs) we should point out though that when you watch her movies you will see people doubling for her when there's any big acrobatics or stunts and she's been very candid about that saying i'm a martial artist like i am not a stunt person i am not going to throw myself like four stories off of something i'm scared of heights so i'll just let them do that and in some of the movies like yes madame or writing wrongs you can see the um stuntman often it's yung bio uh with like eyeliner on and like a cynthia ross rock wig just to double for her and Another issue I would say was even like these classic films and the reason that you would go, you know, I wouldn't recommend all of them is that you get the sense that the producers are going, people don't want to watch a whole film with women as the stars. And that is a problem that people like Cynthia Rossrock faced at the beginning of her career and, you know, near the middle, near the end in Hong Kong and North America, instead of just like making, you know, a Jackie Chan film where it would be all about Jackie Chan. It's Cynthia Rothrock and Michelle Yeoh, two like charismatic dynamos push off to the side to make way for like three bumbling comedic guys that you, why would I watch these people? It's so boring. Well, you would watch it because one of them is the great filmmaker, Choi Hark, uh, doing, doing shenanigans and shtick. But I, I do agree with you. Uh, one thing I would point out is that M- Michelle Yeoh is obviously a great actress. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cynthia Rothrock, you know, there are some martial arts movie stars where the personality and the charisma is as important as the fighting skills. I think Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan are both examples of that. Like, you watch their movies as much to spend time with them as you do to see them fight. Um, I don't think this is the case with Cynthia Rothrock. I think she's a fighter, first, foremost, and maybe even only. First of all, all of those Hong Kong movies were shot without sound, and she didn't even speak Cantonese. And she's dubbed by somebody else. And we should be pointed out that Jackie Chan was also dubbed by somebody else until the 90s. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> like, that's insane to me to spend all that time and then some like nobody comes in and just does your voice. Uh, if you look at her in Yes, Madame and like the few films she did after that, I would say that she's at like her purest form. She's at the coolest. It's fun to just watch her do her thing and just act like just the look they have for her, which is like pure 80s. And then in the 90s, as it goes along, she starts to resemble more like a parent who's going and doing this kind of stuff. Well, in the 90s, too, though, she does some more kind of like she does some more like sexy movies. Like, like she becomes a bit more of, a, especially in the American type stuff. She's some of them get a little more um, Skinamax. Skinamax. You you watched one of those this week? Yeah, I did. Um, Sworn to Vengeance, I think it was called, and that movie was not good. And unfortunately, Cynthia Rossrock says it's one of her favorites because she was an associate producer on it. She felt she had some manner of creative control. She brought in a Hong Kong action person. You would not know watching the movie. And you know, the movie is almost a great. Um, example of America just not knowing what to do with somebody like Cynthia Rossrock. Oh, she's a woman, right? So we need to make her like sexy and have a bunch of sex scenes because that's all really women can do. I mean, she says that throughout her career, she fought tooth and nail that she would not appear topless in movies and that every American production she did, they were like, you have to appear topless. And she's like, no, 
Like, they even tried to trick her a few times, and she said, it's in my contract that I will not do it. And they even tried to do stuff like, oh, we won't show your breast, just but take your top off. And so she wore, like, giant pasties on set, and they're like, whoa, what's that? And she went, well, if you're not going to see it, it doesn't make any difference, right? They're like, ah, shit. <laughs> and, you know, American films, we'll get into this probably even more, they just didn't know what to do with her because there was no market that would be able to exploit her skills in the best way. You go back to, like, something like... Uh, writing wrongs which i would argue is her best overall film and you have her skills at like their max power there. wow i loved writing wrongs i'd never seen it before it was also released as above the law i believe the uh weinstein's dragon dynasty company put it out as above the law which is the only time i've ever seen it called above the law ever since i got into hong kong cinema it's always been writing wrong but it's primarily a vehicle for yun biao who is one of the three like Cantonese opera guys, Jackie Chan, Sammo Hung, Yun Biao, were the three brothers growing up. And I, I feel like Yun Biao, like, he's the least popular of the three, which is why I have some big gaps in my Yun Biao knowledge. Uh, but See, I, I was a Yun Biao uh, super fan right away when I got to Hong Kong cinema, because I guess I just gravitated to the underdog status that he had. I mean, he's amazing. He may he may be the best athlete of the three. I mean, oh, I mean, both of them would say that he was the best athlete of all of them and that he was so well-rounded because he could do so many acrobatics himself. So I was blown away by this movie, Writing Wrongs, when I finally saw it this week, because it has some scenes in it that I think are as good as anything that's ever come out of Hong Kong. I mean, you have Yung Biao working at his full power. You have Corey Yun uh, behind the camera, the director of Yes, Madame, just going all out. And I guess since the Ross Rock, I would argue, at her most charismatic, like, Corey Yun knows what to do with her. She's introduced in a great fight scene at a gaming den, and she does this thing where, like, she uses handcuffs to put them all together. And so she's doing like flips. She's moving out of the way. And it's the perfect use of her as an actor and a performer. This kind of like complicated thing that doesn't necessarily need to emphasize power, but uses all of her martial arts skills. And she has a big indoor fight with Yung Biao that is just crazy. Everyone's doing flips all over the place. And Ross Rock said that um, Biao was the best performer that she ever did a fight scene with you know i think i like cynthia rothrock best as an actor when she is uh acting like she fights you know very compactly and directly millionaires express is good for that you know she gives a very no frills performance in that it's basically all about the fighting and she's very deadpan uh why don't we talk a little bit about her big american movie china o'brien uh, directed by Enter the Dragons, Robert Klaus. The man who became the torchbearer for, what, there's a new martial artist that could be a star. Give them to me and I will king them. Yeah, he did, for example, Jackie Chan's attempted American big break Battle Creek Brawl. He did Jim Kelly's Black Belt Jones. Uh, there was a Bolo Jung film called, uh, what's that one called, Ironheart? Oh, did he direct that as well? Oh, and who could forget that he also did Jim Kata with Kurt Thomas, which combined the thrill of karate with the skill of gymnastics. Now, China O'Brien, uh, its biggest issue is that you feel the filmmakers kind of like shrug their shoulders and go, well, I don't know what to do with Cynthia Rossrock. So I guess we'll just put her in a generic pot boiler where she returns to her hometown and does like a walking tall where she takes control again. Yeah, I mean, this movie could not be more generic. She's a former big city cop. She goes back to her rural hometown and, yeah, like Buford Pusser before her, she sees that the town is in the pocket of this corrupt gangster 
and her father is the sheriff and he gets taken out by the gangster so she decides to run for mayor of the town and that puts her in great danger uh, along for the ride is the great richard norton another uh, guilo in hong kong uh, who plays her uh, high school sweetheart and also her current paramour and you could not get more boring fighting if you tried in this movie <laughs> like american stuntmen going yeah this is fighting i guess right they just like throw slow motion punches and kicks at each other robert klaus's fight scenes are always so basic i mean in this movie it's like okay you got two people in a gym and he parks the camera down and they do a bunch of kicks and punches and maybe they use some gym equipment. And I mean, God love Robert Klaus. He definitely seems to have appreciated the martial arts. And like more than a lot of American filmmakers, he seems to have understood each of the martial artists he works with and understood their individual appeal and tried to t tailor his films around their personalities. Well, compare it to a movie like Blonde Fury, which we both watched this week, which is one of her Hong Kong movies. Not a very good movie, but there's a scene towards the end of that where she's fighting a bunch of guys on a giant net. And she's like propelling her body through the holes of the net and twisting herself around and she's pushing other people through the net. There are whole new dimensions of space being explored in a Hong Kong fight scene. The Hong Kong, the Hong Kong fight choreographers really think about how can we use a space to its best advantage. And I don't think Robert Klaus ever did. And I wonder like when Cynthia Ross Rock was doing all of these American films, like all the ones she did in the 90s and beyond, was she on set with Richard Norton and like looking at each other and going... Oh, man, this is not good compared to what we were doing in Hong Kong. Like, we can look at the examples on screen and stuff like Yes, Madame, or, you know, Richard Norton's City Hunter, or Magic Crystal, which they both were both in, which was a Wong Jing family film. And you look at those fight scenes and you're like, oh, yeah, that's the best. And then you're on the set of China O'Brien and you're like, okay, so I just have punch the guy, he'll duck. Maybe I'll do like a little faint at some Jackie Chan stuff, but in slow motion. And were they sad or were they like, I am so happy that we don't have to do what we were doing in Hong Kong, where we feared for our life every day. Like if you look at interviews with her and she talked about those Hong Kong films, she is very open with the fact that like she was constantly hurt. She got hurt so bad that she couldn't uh, use her good side anymore doing stunts that, you know, the stunt choreographers, they would push them so hard until they just couldn't do it anymore. As little as she is in Yes, Madame, she shot that movie for seven and a half months. That is insane. <laughs> My God. I think we've told this on the podcast before, but you remember that time when we went to see Donnie Yen speak and he talked about, uh, what was that movie he did early in his career? That kind of like dance movie? Mismatch Couple. There was a stunt in that movie where he was supposed to just like throw himself at top speed against a brick wall and everybody on the set was saying, uh, I think you're going to get hurt if you do this. And he says, no, 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 don't worry. And, he's, and he was saying, yeah, 30 years later, I still feel that. <laughs> yeah, he says that he can't sleep on that side on anything soft because he's just in pain all the time. <laughs> oh, my God. I was listening to Cynthia Rossrock talk about um, her role in No Retreat, No Surrender 2, Raging Thunder. And even beyond like the martial arts scene, she said they were doing a scene on train tracks in Thailand. And the director's like, all right, don't worry. We have a stunt person. He's listening for a train. And if it comes, just find a nook in the mountain that you can press up against and it can go by. And it actually happened and they had to do it. They had to find a nook and like go up against because it was an elevated platform. And just like the train was like a few inches from their face as it just blew by. Unbelievable.
unbelievable. So you see her American stuff and maybe she's like, I'm just happy to be here. I'm happy to be able to go home at night. I am not in a hotel for the like length of this film. And while I may not be creating like amazing action, at least I'm safe and I don't feel like I'm going to die every day. I think we both dipped into some of her more obscure work this week. I watched a movie called Manhattan Chase from 2000, which I watched because it is the final film of Godfrey Ho, the cut and paste king. And uh, I thought, well, it's this week or never. And it's one of his rare non-cut and paste pictures where you probably watch the American version that it's all Lauren Avedon and Cynthia Rothrock together just talking for most of the picture. Yeah, and Cynthia Rothrock comes in and out she's quite good when she appears like like even a movie like this will have some like pretty solid punches and kicks thrown in it but oh my god i mean just just such a boring boring film and (laughs) anyway godfrey ho like shot it on the fly in new york so there are lots of scenes that just unfold in like this one parking lot beneath the brooklyn bridge uh on the brooklyn side so you see manhattan in the background you know, but you don't see a lot of actual Manhattan in the movie because it's hard to film on the fly in there. It's more like Brooklyn Chase featuring Manhattan more than anything else. There's a scene towards the end where there's like a big chase in Central Park where uh, the villain is on roller skates and Cynthia Rothrock is following him on a motorized scooter. And I thought, really? A motorized scooter? You want to be like, ah, if she'd only been giving more chances in America, people that understood what she could do. But the reality is, There was nobody there that understood or could do anything with her because they did not grasp the way that action should be shot, a.k.a. the Hong Kong style. You know, you look at places like uh, China or even Japan, and they have stars like you mentioned, Michelle Yeoh, uh, Moon Lee, Cynthia Khan, Yukuri Oshima. Like, they know what to do with women action performers and how to shoot it. And that's the frustrating thing is that you look at like Chuck Norris, like he is a block of wood. Compared to Chuck Norris, Cynthia Rothrock is like Marlon Brando. (laughs) But Chuck Norris kept being able to make way more action pictures than she did. Because you always get the feeling that people were like, a woman, let's put her with another guy like um, Chad McQueen. Yeah, in martial law. It's like this guy with like a big beer belly. And it's like, we need this guy to anchor the picture. Cynthia, you'll be a supporting character. And, you know, like any action performer, she started in the mid 80s by like the early 2000s. She cannot do the stuff that she could do in Hong Kong anymore. And she was trapped on the American market. So she became more of a like, um, oh, it's just happy to see her in these films. And she befriended people like David Dakota and appeared in stuff like Santa's Summer Cabin. Um, She's also in Mercenaries, the Fred Olin Ray um, uh, Expendables ripoff, which has Vivica A. Fox and Zoe uh, Zoe Bell, I think. How dare you, Will? Fred Olin Ray? Don't you mean Chris Olin Ray, his son? Oh, shit. Okay, my apologies. She got together with, like, Jahal Murray, uh, Canada's very own director of martial arts films and stuff like Tiger Claws. So there's a lot of stuff out there, especially in the 90s, that's, like, very generic and will all blend together in your mind with titles like Rage and Honor, Rage and Honor uh, Part 2. I mean, obviously stuff like China O'Brien was successful enough because she did do a China O'Brien 2 that was directed by Robert Klaus. So it's like uh, there was an audience that was hungry for stuff that she could do, 
but she was just stuck with people who didn't know how to do it in the best way. But I recommend for the curious to go down a YouTube rabbit hole of the best Cynthia Rothrock fights, and then also check out her own YouTube channel. That's right, Cynthia Rothrock is a vlogger now, and she has a series of videos where she talks about the making of her most popular movies and uh, talks about what nightmare horror shows they were. <laughs> Yes. I'm surprised she doesn't have like terrible PTSD talking about some of them. Like the fact that like the famous shot in Yes, Madame, where she like jumps back up and she does the splits and she's up against the wall that she wanted to not complain. And she stayed in that position for hours. And like the next day she could not walk anymore. <laughs> or that at one point she got punched in the nose and Corian is like, you look better that way. Her nose is all like red and like big. Oh my God. Well, Cynthia Rothrock, if you're listening, thank you for sacrificing yourself for your art like that. I would recommend do a triple bill of the Millionaire's Express. Great movie, writing wrongs, excellent and uh magic crystal super fun as well richard norton and cynthia ross rock taking on andy lau was action choreographed by the director of super fights what's not to like it's great stuff so justin do we have any letters this we week? do have some letters as per usual you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com questions comments whatever our first letter goes hi folks just wanted to reach out to say i'm a big fan of the show and congratulate you on doing such a good job Please take a moment to appreciate me writing this on the week Will Sloan trashed two of my favorite directors on the two different podcasts, Spielberg and Wes Anderson. And yes, I know trash is a little hard, but you get the point. I did. I First of all, I said that Spielberg was a great director in many ways. Wait, what movie did you talk about on some other podcast I don't want to know about? Um, I talked about The Post. No, I like The Post. Ugh, I don't know. I mean, it's entertaining, whatever. But, but it's like, no, no, Spielberg is like... I mean, I just saw Jaws again. It fucking rules. Did you talk about how Spielberg shot the post in like a couple months and it was essentially like a Roger Corman picture that he just rushed through just to prove that he could do it? Yeah. And I mean, even the post, which I think is mostly a bad movie, it's like it's paced well. You know, the guy knows how to tell a story. Uh, and Wes, Wes Anderson, I like. I mean, all, all I said was that I, I wasn't all that excited for the next one. <laughs> That's right. How dare you? <laughs> Do you get angry when you listen to podcasts sometimes and people like, you know, vaguely diss something and it like stays with you every time you listen to something else? Actually, I remember being turned off the film spotting podcast when they did a review where they didn't like duck soup. And I feel like I was never able to look at that podcast the same way again. I remember listening to the Slate Culture Gab Fest a decade ago, and it got to the point that they would just dislike popular movies like, ugh, no thank you, that I was like, nah, I don't want to listen to this anymore. And I haven't since then. Well, I hope that we have enough opinions on things that um, it doesn't make you go, I don't want to listen to this anymore, especially if you're a Patreon subscriber. Keep subscribing. We'll like whatever you like. The letter continues. While I'm here, may I suggest an episode on the Dardenne brothers? They are amongst the most celebrated directors in the world, and I just don't get that and I just don't get the love. Maybe it's the fact that their hyper-realistic style, following characters from the back as they walk, has been adopted by basically all independent dramas. Anyway, what do you think Anyway, what do you think? Keep up the good work? Conrado. I think they're right. I mean, I think that style, the Dardenne style, doesn't quite feel as fresh as it used to. And it doesn't feel as fresh as it used to in the Dardenne's movies either, you know? I basically like the Dardenne's, but I'm not all that excited to see... Like, I, I, I kind of feel like I get it at this point, you know? Yeah, they're not filmmakers that I explored that much. I feel like if I had been around when they really hit it big in... Late 90s, early 2000s. Maybe it would have been a bigger deal. But at this point, every new Dardenne film is like, hey, it's a new one. It's kind of like the other one. So, you know, if you like it, you like it. 
I could see us tackling it, talking about, you know, more neorealist stuff, which is a topic that we tend to avoid on this podcast because we like the fun things. We should we should do the Dardens at some point, though. Yeah. Well, first, we got to do like Vittorio De Sica or... Um... Actually, let's do Vittorio De Sica because he's not really a favorite of mine, but I feel like I feel like I'd like to see Bicycle Thieves again. Uh, so our next letter is from Erwin, and it goes, as someone who is still new to film fandom and is working frantically to learn more, I just want to say I'm so glad to have your podcast. Well, thank you. I'm slowly working my way through your archives up to episode 56, so if you read this on the podcast, I won't know for months, possibly years. And I love that you guys are never pretentious and always fun. It's great that you tell me up front whether I need to watch classics you discuss or which movies to see from a particular director. Your discussions are always so accessible and fun. I never feel like an idiot for not knowing more about film. Uh, That's something that I do worry about when we talk about stuff like, do we just drop names and people are like, I don't know what they're talking about, and it's too much work to go looking for. Sometimes we hear from people who are like, oh, I like it when you do the popular directors because I, I don't have any context for the other stuff, which I totally understand and respect. You know, it's <laughs> we try hard to provide context, guys. <laughs> you and me, like we will drop names like, you know, Richard Norton, as if people know who that is. <laughs> And continuing the letter, most importantly, thanks to the important cinema club, I finally understood a Corman reference in the Sandman comic book series. Thanks, guys. Aaron. What this letter made me think of was, was there a movie that you saw and suddenly you like got a reference in something else? And we can't just talk about The Simpsons because that's obviously the big one. So I can't think of a specific example, but I do know that like Looney Tunes cartoons from the 30s, like any of those cartoons where it's like a bunch of celebrities from the time, like Hollywood steps out. Like, I I feel like I'm constantly like every couple of years making new discoveries in those. I think that like a lot of Hong Kong films can often be magic eye posters especially the work of Stephen Chow, which is very in the moment and will parody stuff like commercials, music videos, or even like gossip that was going on around the time. Because those Stephen Chow pictures, a lot of them were just considered disposable entertainment that someone like Wong Jing, the director, would just rush out as quickly as possible. So you get a lot of like almost disaster movie spoofing. And sometimes you will have no idea and you'll just take the joke as is. But when you see stuff like Ashes of Time, you'll go, Oh, I get it now. They were parodying that. Or there were, you know, Wong Kar Wai is definitely a target that all the like Hong Kong popular entertainment loves to make fun of as well. There was one movie, I forget what it was called, but it was from the late 90s where there was a character called Wong Jing Wai. I'll dig up what the title of that movie was. It's like, it's not a famous or popular movie or anything, but it was like a direct, it was a character who like combined the worst tendencies of both auteurs we said this before but the zucker brothers and jim abrams film can also be like finnegan wake texts that especially when you're a kid you watch and you don't get anything like there's a whole long scene in mafia that is just a parody of the english patient and as a kid i had no idea what that was and it's only watching it recently that i went oh they're supposed to be making fun of the burn makeup in the english patient in this there's scene. a movie called they call me bruce from the early 80s you know which is kind of like a, a ripoff of the zucker abrams movies that is i swear like 50 percent commercial parodies uh like there's a scene where johnny you and the star of it says i got run over by a toyota oh what a feeling well you know hopefully for any listeners we can help them provide context to jokes of their favorite films they never knew was a reference on that note though just making a joke to a reference to something is so lame and serves no purpose it doesn't really make anybody laugh i agree so will big news there's a new gold ninja video release And it's one that's been a long time coming. That's right. We are exploring the work of Edgar G. Ulmer. Who? The ultimate vulgar auteur 
in our in our newest blu-ray release we're looking at the poverty row titans uh, 1944 film bluebeard starring john carradine one of his most atmospheric chillers a film that brought german expressionist aesthetics to the lowest rung of hollywood john carradine plays this bluebeard uh lady killer in something century france yeah let's say 19th century france 19th century france why not and we have an extras packed blu-ray now remember the important cinema club bargain bin classics is a public domain dvd company but we are the criterion of public domain dvd companies so do not expect a restored high definition transfer of the film but what you will get is feature-length audio commentary by Justin and myself, full of historical tidbits and analysis. You will get three featurettes, a discussion between Justin and I about the work of John Carradine. It's 18 minutes long, too, so you get bang for your buck there. It's basically a whole episode. Uh, Justin did a wonderful video essay about cinematographer Eugene Schuftan. Yeah, when I approached this disc, I was like, Edgar G. Ulmer, we've talked about him so much. How can I find like interesting stuff that we can do and talk about him? And the reality is someone like Eugene Schuftan never gets talked about doing research into this video essay. He was never even interviewed in his lifetime. He won an Oscar and he did not get to pick it up. Uh, Thankfully, I found a lot of interesting information online, like in nooks and crannies, and I'm going to compress it all into a visual essay. So it's basically me reciting something that I wrote, but with uh, clips and posters to underline the points that I'm making. And someone like Shuftan, who never gets talked about as a cinematographer, even though that he worked with every Everybody, all the like German greats. He shot a film for Buster Keaton. Um, you know, he was somebody who was always on the outskirts because he could not get in the union. And the way that he ended up uh, getting into the union, it's crazy. So we have that video featurette. And of course, we have the classic, uh, The Best of Edgar G. Ulmer, which you can find on YouTube. But I decided to throw on here, you know, for uh, completionist's sake. And hey, uh, you love Edgar G. Elmer. I love Edgar G. Elmer. So why not explore some of the nooks and crannies of his filmography? There are two feature-length bonus films, his 1946 effort, The Wife of Monte Cristo, and his Canadian quota quickie, From Nine to Nine, from 1936. Uh, from Nine to Nine is... Yeah, it's a movie. Yeah, you can't deny that. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. I put it on here because it is one of his rarest films. You never see it anywhere. And it's really fun to see um, Edgar G. Elmer shoot a movie in Montreal, set in Montreal. It's just like a Poverty Row style mystery film. And Wife of Monte Cristo is super fun because he used like all the emigre actors that he knew. It's shot by Shuftan. It's like this big gothic swordplay film about how the Count of Monte Cristo gets kidnapped and his wife has to step up and take his place. That's really fun too. Of course, you know, every important cinema club listener knows there's a hidden film on this disc as well. And it's a great one, I have to say liner notes by will sloan and it's not written anywhere but i'll tell you here there are two i say two transfers of bluebeard on this disc yes i found two dvds that the transfers were different enough that one of them is very bright and it looks almost washed out while the other one is much kind of like darker it's more like a grindhouse print and they both have their pros and cons but i included both of them because i'm a completionist and i love the idea of two versions of one movie on a disc i mean this is amazing folks and it's only ten dollars it's only ten dollars pick it up at goldninjavideo.com it is limited edition 200 copies like i say every time we talk about gold ninja video stuff keeps dropping out of print so if you want to order bluebeard we have a whole catalog of stuff 
stuff that we've done, like um, Edgar G. Ulmer's Brother in Arms, Frank Wisbar's Strangler of the Swamp, which we released last month and is still available on the website. So check it out. On our Patreon this week, earlier in the podcast, we mentioned Robert Klaus, who did so many movies with uh, Hong Kong martial arts stars in America. Uh, Well, we decided to look at the two movies that Jackie Chan made in the 80s that were uh, his attempt to break into the American market. One of them is a Robert Klaus film, The Big Brawl. The other one is James Glickenhaus's The Protector. Do they hold up? Are they better than their reputations? Do we find new things to say about these movies, which I'm sure we probably talked about in the past? Yes, we do. So listen to it at patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. $5 a month, you get our entire back catalog. You also get access to next weekend, let's have another movie night on Friday at 8 p.m. I'll have more info. I'll send it to all Patreon subscribers and I'll be posting it on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, so next week on the podcast, uh, we've made it over 200 episodes at this point. So uh, I think it's finally time to do some gay porn. And uh, we are going to be looking at Probably the most uh, famous, well, maybe not the most famous, but the most uh, critically esteemed gay pornographer, Wakefield Poole. So I guess we'll be watching Bijou and maybe... Uh, Boys it, in the Sand? That sounds like a good one. I have I have no background in this filmmaker. I've seen one or two of his films, but I'm excited to dive in. So until next week, my name is Will Sloan. <laughs> my name is Justin the Clue. Thanks for listening. This is Justin interrupting briefly to thank some of our new Patreon subscribers, who include Adam W., Alexander Reford, Eli Osman, Diana Isokin, Brendan Murray, Old BC, and Alex Holmes. Thank you very much for becoming Patreon subscribers. We could not keep doing this without you. As I mentioned on the regular episode, if you're a Patreon subscriber, check your messages, because in the next few days I will send some info about the screening we'll be having this Friday at 8pm. Basically, it boils down to, if you check out the Discord, which is the chat room you get access to when you become a Patreon subscriber, I will post a link a few minutes before the show starts, and then everybody can click on that, and we'll all meet there, I'll do an intro, we'll watch the movie, you can chit-chat on the side, and we'll probably even have a little bit of a a video discussion after it ends so i hope if you're a patreon subscriber i will see you there and if you haven't yet we would really appreciate it if you could give us a review on apple podcast stitcher or whatever podcast app that you use you can follow me on twitter at J. you can follow will at will sloan esq we also have a twitter account for important cinema club a facebook group and a gold ninja video twitter account and if you'd like more podcast content for your ears Make sure to check me out on the Bay Street Video Podcast, which is a weekly show I do with Mark Hansen, the product manager of Bay Street Video. Essentially, we go through like 30 to 50 uh, new releases every week that include what's been in cinemas a few months ago, stuff that's gone direct to video, old classics being released by companies like Scream Factory or Arrow or Kino. It's a real blast. You don't really need to know anything about the movies that we're talking about because often I don't, but Mark Hansen knows probably 10 times as much as I do. So if you like discovering new movies or just want to hear people talk about ones you already know, check out the Bay Street Video Podcast. And if you just want to laugh, give a listen to No Such Thing as a Bad Movie Podcast, where me, April Atmansky, and Colin Cunningham every two weeks go through a new bad movie, I'm saying this in air quotes, and each find something that we like about it. So if it interests you, give it a listen. And now we return you to your regular scheduled programming. A lot of the times, me and Will, we won't talk about people that have passed away only because 
there's probably like nothing else that we could add. Like when someone really famous dies. Yeah, like there are so many people are dying and like we tend to talk about them if we have some like personal connection or or some thoughts or we want to or we want to use it as an opportunity to explore the work. But I feel like when I learned that Ted Newsom passed away, it was definitely something that me and Will could talk about. I actually like messaged Will. I'm like, oh man, Ted Newsom died. And if you're listening to this and you're like, who's Ted Newsom? Well, he was one of those like super fan people that you, if you get into like classic horror or even like Poverty Row, animation, universal monsters, you will see his name pop up in like documentaries or forwards because he was one of the authorities on those things. And he was also a guy who you would see like, in Facebook groups, on forums, you know, a guy with a, you know, a bit of a sharp tongue, you know, a bit of a salty sense of humor. I I got the sense from seeing his posts. But I think the most like significant thing he did was he did a documentary about hammer horror where he was he reunited Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, like to narrate it, basically. I've never seen it. I've never been like the biggest hammer horror fan. But uh, I know that documentary, like people brought that up a lot. He did a documentary on Ed Wood called Ed Wood Look Back in Angora, which was ubiquitous in the 90s, like in video stores, basically to cash in on the Tim Burton movie. So I saw that a lot growing up. And he also did a lot of dvd commentaries he did commentaries on he did commentaries with david dakota on some of the ed wood movies and he did commentaries with bella lugosi jr on releases of devil bat and bowery at midnight so he's definitely a guy who like feels like he's been in the background for for seemingly my whole life a guy who just like pops up when i'm reading about movies or when i'm looking on the internet about movies And he was also a filmmaker in his own right. He directed a movie called The Naked Monster, which was like a tribute to 50s horror movies that had like all had like John Agar. Paul Marco was in it as Kelton Lacoff, you know, like ton ton of people like that. And he uh, co-directed Evil Spawn with uh, Fred Olin Ray. Yeah. So the Fred Olin Ray film, which we actually talk about at length on the Bluebeard disc, because that film features footage of John Carradine. And I should point out that the film, which was made in 1987, 88, I think Ted Newsom came in uh, after the first version was shot and like shot new footage to be put into the movie. And then that was re-edited again and new footage was shot by Fred Olin Ray, who was a good friend of Ted Newsom, into The Alien Within. But like in the 90s, Ted Newsom was doing like like every like major documentary on stuff that was considered like, you know, lesser. Even things like, you know, Frankenstein, a cinematic scrapbook, Dracula, a cinematic scrapbook, Elvis. He did stuff on just, you know, a hundred years of horror. He was like one of those voices. And when you see people like him uh, on commentary tracks, you get excited. It's like seeing David Dakota or Fred Olin Ray. It makes me go, oh, what are they going to say um, about these movies? Because they have a perspective that nobody else has. Because like in the 90s and the 80s, they caught the like tailwind of all the like Poverty Road people who were still kind of hanging around. And they loved... Yeah, they were interviewing those people. Yeah. And they were trying to get their stories, putting them in movies. I was watching the commentary of The Alien Within, which Ted Newsom does with Fredolin Ray. And at one point they point out, hey, look, there's like a monogram stock on the back wall, like a certificate that was an official one that you could get back in the time that they were in production. Like, that's the good stuff. You know, speaking of Ted Newsom, it also made me think of like, what were the other like major fans? Because, you know, Dave Dakota is one of them, Fertile and Ray. Yeah, well, like there are certain fans who really made it their mission to like preserve the memories and, uh, and, and go out, befriend and like actually actually document the history of this stuff. So like Tom Weaver did a ton of 
absolutely great and essential interview books where he just talked to every B 50s uh, horror and sci-fi person. But yeah, the the darker side, I mean, uh, there's that guy, Bay Logan, who... Um, I like how you say that guy, like, you are very intimately uh, knowledgeable of Bay Logan. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> he was the guy that, like, in the 2000s, that me and Will probably will not have seen or gotten that much context out of the Hong Kong cinema scene if it wasn't for him. He worked as Hong Kong Legends, he put all those movies out, and he did hundreds of commentary tracks on all of those and films. And those commentary tracks... Like he's not he's not great at analysis, but he's great at facts. Like he knows ev- he 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 knows. I almost said he knew as if he's dead, uh, which he might may as well be. But he might might but, as well be. But he he knows like everything about everybody who's on screen. He wrote this book in the nineties called Hong Kong Action Cinema, which is a great resource. Uh, just an, an incredible book, and he was involved in the Hong Kong film industry. I believe he wrote the medallion the jackie chan film he did aka high binders but unfortunately he was kind of the harvey weinstein of uh, of whatever he was he worked with harvey weinstein because he worked for miramax if you look at when some reports came out about him they only lasted about like two days because that's how important figure that he was but thankfully like that was it like he's not working in film industry anymore he's not doing commentaries like all that stuff is over for him because whoa boy if you go look in uh, those articles online there's some real nasty stuff there you know what always rubbed me the wrong way about bay logan and a lot of people like him so this is this is a mean thing to say about someone but he deserves it so i don't care like he seems like the kind of guy who was like you know a nerd growing up and you know he watched bruce lee movies and was like oh i wish i could be bruce lee and then I could beat up my bullies. And, you know, then uh, he never stopped being a nerd, but he did eventually get to the point where he was in proximity to some of his heroes and he was in uh, a position of minor power. And so, like, in that position of minor power, he wanted to finally strut like he was Bruce Lee. You know, it's like, oh, I finally I finally earned this, you know, now I can be Harvey Weinstein. Oh, God. I mean, he was best pals as Donnie Yen. He actually fights him on the Fist of Fury TV show. He plays the white guy role in that. And he also fights Donnie Yen in Circus Kids. At the same time, like when we talk about super fans, ones that are not, don't have like that drastically like terrible um, lives. We have people like Rick Myers, who is kind of like the affable um, nerd when it comes to Hong Kong cinema, who I guess he was like the only US guy for a long time. And because of that, there's so much like, hate by some fans where it's like why him why not me yeah he was in hong kong in the 80s just this white guy with a giant beard interviewing all these people who had no who had no idea why would anybody from the west care about our movies yeah he wrote a book called um kung fu cinema but we found this thread about him on some website it's it's like a six page or a six part like dossier of everything he's more like 15 part (laughs) everything he's done wrong and you read it and it's like oh i like none of it none of this is really bad it's just you know opinions he's had and you know facts he got wrong like he used to do all the tai sang dvd commentary tracks and he got dates wrong he got actors wrong he got movie titles wrong it's like yeah that happens when you're in the moment and you're doing that like me and will do it all the time (laughs) and it's just like what that's so odd to me of like you would hate the person that like it's rick myers 
he is not living in a mansion somewhere. He is probably in a one-bedroom apartment in L.A. that's covered in posters that he's trying to sell. I actually once saw Rick Myers, like in, I want to say 2012, I went to see Police Story at Lincoln Center, and I saw him there, you know, in the front row, basically. It was great, great to see he's still out there going to see Police Story. He interviews Stephen Chow on the Kung Fu Hustle disc, and it's like, they, they, he was the only guy they knew in America who could talk about this stuff. I mean, I should point out that one of the greats who doesn't get talked about very much is Toby Russell. He started a martial arts magazine that like a lot of the information that we know is because he went out and he interviewed those people. Like he did a whole um, essay on Lee So Nam, the Taiwanese director. Um, he uh, knew people like Robert Tai and uh, Toby Russell is the son of Ken Russell who got really into Hong Kong cinema. And Toby Russell did something none of the other super fans did is that he directed a martial arts picture with like, you know, Taiwanese action stars called The Dada Connection that um, was then released. It is not very good, but it's really interesting that like a super fan got to work with the people that were like doing the stuff that he loved and he could do his own version of it. Oh, uh, that's the dream. Yeah. I mean, didn't Rick Myers direct a porno? I remember you finding that information uh, out. It, it's a fetish film, I think. I don't know if it has any actual hardcore stuff in it. It's called Kidnapped Girls Agency. Uh, look it up, folks. 